it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Ed Gross, and this is Voices from Krypton, where we speak superhero. When Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created the Fantastic Four in 1961, its depiction of a team of superheroes who bicker as much as they supported each other was nothing short of a revelation. Unfortunately, it hasn't experienced the same sort of success in the big screen. To be sure, the 2005 film, starring a pre-Captain America Chris Evans, was profitable and led to the 2007 sequel, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, which cost more and made less than its predecessor. Flash forward to 2015, and we were given a reboot, which was perceived as nothing less than a disaster and lost a lot of money. But at least all of those efforts had the benefit of actually being released. The same can't be said of executive producer Roger Corman's low-budget 1994 effort, which some claim was put into production so that producer Bern Eichinger could retain his license to the property in the hopes of a bigger payday, which did happen, as he served as producer on the first two released films. Now the truth behind the lost film has been chronicled in the pages of Forsaken, the making and aftermath of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four, which is written by William Nesbitt and published by Bear Manor Media. We're talking to William, who fills us in on what it was all about. Of all things to write about, why this one? Well, some of it is I'm working on a project with a couple of friends of mine uh, doing some interviews for, about Roger Corman and New World Pictures. Right. And I had done some interviews, and then I was just kind of scanning through the filmography and, and saw the Fantastic Four which was, you know, sort of like having a surreal dream. You know, you say, man, I had this strange dream that there was this unreleased Fantastic Four movie that Roger Corman did. Right. And so I was going to kind of veer into that. And uh, because I have a big interest in, in comic books and, and comic book movies anyway, and I was already looking at things by Corman, so then it just kind of became its own project. And I was really intrigued also with sort of the, the legend and the circumstances surrounding it and what happened and what may have happened and what people say happened or think may have happened. I mean, I remember back in the day when that movie was coming out, I was uh, publishing a magazine called Not of This Earth, and I interviewed uh, Oli Sasson and, and a few other people, you know, some of the cast members and all that stuff. And boy, mm -hmm. they sure, sure felt that that movie was coming out. Yeah, I think that they all believed that it was going to come out. I think that that's what they thought. And even after uh, they finished uh, principal production, I think that they they still thought that it was going to uh, come out. And I know that uh, a couple of the people, uh, Michael, uh, outside White, who played uh, Mr. Fantastic, uh, he was doing promotion uh, for uh, the movie, and Michael Bailey Smith was was doing promotion also. And and sort of one of the weird things is that even uh, Corman had produced things for the movie. You know, there's there's a really nice poster uh, out there. Uh, you can find um, buttons and pins and and things like that. So there were promotional materials uh, as well. So it really a lot of things really indicated that it was going to come out. I know behind the scenes that Oli uh, has talked about how 
he was sort of having, he was working on another film for Corman after this, and he was having to have some of the Fantastic Four footage kind of snuck into him to finish work on. And for example, with one of the uh, scenes towards the end of the movie uh, that takes place um, with the thing that Mark Sykes, who was doing some of the casting and, and some of the other things for Corman, that he had to put the suit on and that's him in the movie because everyone has sort of left. So there was still sort of this unfinished feel about things, but yet a lot of other things indicated that it was eventually going to be finished and was going to come out. But here's the thing we, you know, what we learned or appeared to learn, and you can obviously put this straight or not, is that Corman only produced this movie to keep the rights that he, this way he knew he could get a bigger payday by selling the rights later on rather than, you know, squat letting it just fade away. And because I guess Marvel was planning something or another, could you give us a sense of what the history of this was then? Well, Bernd Eichinger had the rights. Corman for a brief time had the rights to Spider-Man and then ended up not doing anything with it. Eichinger, Bernd Eichinger is the one who had the rights. And he he did some other things like the never ending story in the name of the rose and uh helped found some 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 entertainment and things like that. He had the rights and the deal was supposed to be that he had to go into production, had to get this movie started um before nineteen ninety two. And he didn't really have enough money to do it. And I believe may have had a discussion with Marvel and basically said, I need some more time or I need some financing. And, and Marvel told him no, because they really wanted to get the rights back sure. because they had, they sort of had undervalued them. Um, and so I can was, you know, in a really sort of tough position and went to Roger Corman because he knew that he could do things produce something on the budget that he had and that Roger Corman could do it very quickly. And it would also lend kind of an air of legitimacy to the movie because the concern also would be, it has to, to sort of get finished enough and be valid enough that if Marvel tried to challenge it, they wouldn't be able to do so. So he goes to Roger Corman, uh, not too long before 1992 ends and kind of explains the situation, explains his budget. And so that's how they sort of start filming it. Um, and I think, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of hard to say because, you know, there's the theory that Fern never intended this to be released. And it was just sort of a placeholder for his rights. Then once he secured those, he'd have more time and more sort of power and position to negotiate with Marvel for a bigger release that they would be a part of. Um, and the question also became, you know, did Corman know this also? Did he think that the movie that he was, you know, filming a, a real movie that was going to come out? Did he know that Eichinger just needed to secure these rights and the movie might or might not come out? Did either or both of them know for sure? then it wasn't going uh, to come out. And sort of my understanding of it is that Roger Corman knew. He knew that the primary purpose of this was to secure the rights, but 
the movie might still come out. But now, when that movie was made, the budget was so low. Did anybody really think that they had a solid movie there that they could pull off something as complex as the Fantastic Four for like a million dollars, whatever the budget was? Well, that's a really good question. Um, Various numbers have been given about the budget, as low as five hundred thousand and as much as two million. Which, right. even though that's double the budget, is still only two million. Uh, but most people believe, yeah, a million dollars is probably the budget. Um, that's very tricky because I think, on the one hand, within the context of a Roger Corman film, it wasn't the most that he had spent, but it was a lot more than he had spent on a great many films. And they had more time to film it uh, than they normally would have had. Uh, they had about, I think it was around three and a half weeks, uh, maybe four weeks of, of film time. So for people who had been traditionally working with him and knew about a Roger Corman film, this was more resources than they would have expected in that context. I think the other sort of context that we have to think about is that in, in our current day and, and era where we have these huge superhero movies coming out and they have, you know, $100 million and, and greater budget, a million dollars seems like so much less. And I think even for 25 years ago, even taking into account inflation and things like that, it's a really small amount of money. Oh, yeah. But I also think that when you look at the 1994 Fantastic Four compared to other sorts of superhero films of the time, it seems much more like a legitimate sort of valid movie than when you look at it compared to the Avengers or something like that. So I think it would have seemed more realistic at that point in time than looking at it within our current context. But even then, I think people still had questions because it still was, was, a, was a low amount of money. And especially considering that the characters they were working with in some ways weren't easy to do in terms of the special effects. Right. Um, you know, that's why that's one of the reasons it's easier to do things like Batman and, and, and the Hulk and even Superman. But with the Fantastic Four, you've got to have stretching, you know, you've got to have fire. You've got to have the transformation, the appearance of the thing. So what they were also trying to do, I think was probably more complicated in terms of visual effects and things oh, like absolutely. that. than Anybody had really tried with the Fantastic Four film. Now you interviewed a bunch of these people, obviously for the book. What are their what is their perspective now? I mean, like I told you, I I had spoken to a bunch of them back in the nineties, and right. they were very enthusiastic. This movie was coming, you know, this is exciting and all that stuff. Now, flash forward twenty five years, and they're looking back at that experience. Generally speaking, mm -hmm. what is their response? What is their reaction to what happened? I think some of them, I think basically what's happened is they sort of have a um, unfortunate sense kind of of acceptance that, okay, this happened and, you know, I accept that, but they're not particularly happy uh, about it. That a lot of them, I think, have realized that, you know, it just kind of comes down to business in some senses. Yeah. And while that doesn't make it feel better to them, it makes it a little more maybe understand uh, understandable from a logical standpoint and from a business standpoint 
Uh, I think a lot of them sort of wonder, what if, you know, what if this had happened? I think there was the question maybe of a sequel or sequels coming out. And some folks, I think, thought maybe that was going to happen. You know, Rebecca, Rebecca Staub, who plays the Invisible, Invisible Girl, thought that maybe this would be the first movie. And then once that came out and did well, then the second one would come out and they would have maybe more resources and things like that for it. And, and they could, could get more into the characters. And I think, for example, she had high hopes of, of, about this. Um, Alex Todd White, who had played Mr. Fantastic, uh, I think had concerns, but he was one of the people who was doing tours and trying to promote uh, this film. Uh, Michael Bailey Smith, uh, who was Ben Grimm, talked about this also with me. He had put his own resources into it because he had been told by a mentor that he had that when you get your break, you got to really go for it and put everything into it. And so he saw this was going to kind of be, you know, his big break that was going to get him to the next level. Uh, Carl Chiarfalio, who was in the thing suit, you know, his thought about it is I still, he thought it was going to come out. I don't think he has a, a terribly high opinion of the movie. But he's just sort of, you know, I mean, this is what happened. And I don't think he thought that it was going to become this huge thing uh, for him necessarily. So there's sort of a range of opinions, but I think that everyone has, you know, has come to accept it. But I think that everyone is still unhappy about it because even if they didn't think that it was going to be the next thing for them, like Carl Chirofalia, they still feel, and I think deservedly so, that they were sort of done wrong with this. They sure. were led to believe one thing, and and it didn't happen. Right. Having written the book for yourself, what is the takeaway? I mean, you know, what was your sort of discovery or revelation or ultimately your feeling about this whole thing? I think I was I was a little surprised that Roger Coleman was willing to talk about it because I understand that it's been a little bit of a sore subject in some ways for him, um, over the years. Right. And he talked with me about it. He was very pleasant to talk to. Uh, and, and I thought very forthcoming. And he basically said that, yeah, he knew from the start, it was to get the right. Uh, he knew that it might not come out. Um, it might, but it might not. And, uh, you know, that's just an unfortunate sort of part of, of, of Hollywood. Right. So it was very interesting to talk with him and hear him, I think, sort of accept some responsibility for it and say some things that maybe didn't make, put him in, in the most positive light. So I thought that was sort of interesting um, to hear about. I think a lot of people talked about how, you know, when you go into a project, you just don't know what's going to happen with it. And so you just have to know that going into it and you want to kind of put your heart and your soul into it. And you can still do that. You don't have to hold back, but you just have to realize after you've done that, you can't control what happens with it next. Uh, there's a sort of unpredictability um, about things. In some ways, I, I feel like the book is about how people also deal with disappointment and dashed expectations. In some ways, it's also was also very interesting to hear people's memories, and in some cases, their different and even conflicting takes uh, on the same event, whether it's an opinion about the movie or it's about something that was done in the movie or what someone knew uh, or didn't know. 
so I felt like a lot of those things were 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 interesting um, to hear about. And it was sort of interesting, I think, also to hear some of the personal stories. Some of these these people remained in Hollywood. Uh, other people uh, have gotten out of it. So you have Oli, you know, Sasson, who's still making movies and still uh, doing things. But then you also have people like Jay Underwood, who played Johnny Storm in The Human Torch, and he's actually become a pastor. And so he's kind of checked out um, from the whole uh, Hollywood thing and is doing something very different. Right. Although I think he makes sort of some, you know, films for the local community and things like that. For the readers then, you know, what is the appeal of this book for people? Because this is such a footnote in history, uh, this, mm-hmm. the supported version of the Fantastic Four. For the reader then, what do you think the appeal of this book is? I think some of it is to kind of read about and 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 learn about and find out about sort of the mystery of this movie, the origins, how it was made, what happened to it afterwards. And in some ways also to sort of decide for yourself what you think happened, because I know what Roger Corman told me, but is it possible, for example, that he didn't know that Byrne came to him, presented this as I've got to hold on to the rights, but I do intend to release this movie. And it was a surprise to Corman when it was bought up. I mean, I, I think that's possible. And I think there's there's still room to read these things and sort of interpret their narrative and think about it uh, for yourself. So I think that's some of it. I think it's, a, it's an interesting look at sort of the early days and attempts at making superhero films. There's a lot of stuff about the history of the Fantastic Four, both in comics uh, and in film. And I think with some of it as well, because I talked with so many people, some of the interviews are really, really unique. Some of these people really haven't come forth and talked uh, a whole lot about this movie. I've got Craig Nevius, for example, uh, who wrote the script, who originally uh, didn't want to be a part of the Doom documentary that Mark Sykes and and Marty Langford put out. He just kind of didn't want to go on record talking about it. Right. I changed his mind later and then talked with me about the script and thoughts about the movie and, and so forth. And in some of these stories, some of these folks, again, they haven't talked a whole lot. So they got beyond just sort of some of the stock responses and, and, and things that you sometimes see recur again and again in interviews and talked a lot about their lives and other projects and personal connections that they have with the movie. And so in a lot of these interviews, there's a degree of honesty and depth and, and I would say in some cases kind of vulnerability that sometimes you don't read about uh, from people uh, who, who giving interviews and, and talking about being in these movies and playing these parts and things like that. You know, there's all this demand now for release the Snyder Cut, <laughs> you know, that people want of Justice League. Should right. there be a movement of release the Corman uh, Cut or is this better off left where it is? No, I think I think it should be I think it should be released. I think it should be released because some of it, of course, is you can find it on YouTube. Uh, you can buy copies uh, off of eBay. You can get it at comic book conventions. So one, it's already sort of out there. Um, the other thing is that it would be great to get it and put it in a little bit more of maybe kind of a finished or a final form. Because a lot of these copies that people are seeing, 
are knockoff copies of copies and things like that. And it would be it would be great to get one of the original prints and do a really good transfer to DVD or Blu-ray and just finish sort of some of those things. I, I don't think you could go in and really redo the special effects. And, and, and that, I think, would start making it fundamentally a different film. Sure. But you could get a really good transfer. You could clean it up. You might even be able to do things. Joseph Culp, who plays Dr. Doom, a lot of his speech is kind of muffled because he's speaking in the mask. And there was never time for him to go back and sort of re-record his lines and things like that. So you could, for example, have him do something like that, which would make what he's saying clearer, enhance the movie, but doesn't really sort of fundamentally change it, like putting in special effects from 25 years later. So there's some things you could do that would kind of spruce it up, sort of sand some of the rough edges put it out there and then let people really experience it because some of the opinions that people have, you know, some people, some people like the movie a lot. They like the earnestness of it. They think it accomplished a lot for the budget. They like how it stayed true to the comic books. Other opinions have not been so kind, but I think it's also really hard to kind of judge this movie. If you're looking at it on your phone or you're looking at it on your laptop and you're going through YouTube and you're seeing a copy of a copy or something like that. I think to really get it in kind of a final form and give it a really good release and maybe try to give it a small theatrical release. You know, put it in some of the the smaller theaters or, or places that will run uh, sort of, you know, sometimes sort of culty films or, 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 or will run classic films from decades ago. And it'd be interesting to see what the reaction would be to it then. So I think it should absolutely get a re-release or, or, or a formal release. And I think it would mean a lot to the people who worked on it also. Because a lot of what they also told me is that, you know, we never really kind of got to see what we had done. Because it wasn't completely finished. And we've always had to go to those same sources. Buy it off the internet, see it on YouTube or something like that. I think something like that would be really interesting to see. So, will there be screams in the streets or online for the release of the Corman Cut? Not likely. But if you are curious about the film, you can check it out on YouTube. And you can buy a copy of Forsaken through Amazon or wherever books are sold. But more importantly, you can subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.